0: Kind of the, soul. That's the soul. Hello American Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm here as always with my friend and co-host Danny Bessner and we are very lucky to be joined once again by returning champion Emma Ashford. Emma is a senior fellow with the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. She is also the author of the book we'll be talking about here today, Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petro-States. Emma, thanks so much for coming back to the show.
1: No, thanks so much for having me. I, I've been meaning to ask, is there like a punch card I can I can get you guys to fill out? You know, one free podcast if you, you do nine? Uh,
0: we do have, yeah, it's a uh 10 visits and and you get to come back for an 11th. Uh I don't know if that's much of a much of an attraction, but but it's the best we got. <laughs> you get to you get to come back and yell at Danny for something that he's written. Uh <laughs> so that that's the that's the appeal. Uh, and what, so what an appeal
2: it is. So many people get to do it for free on Twitter. There's a I'm line of people yeah, just
0: clamoring <laughs> to get in here and and scream at him for something that he's written or tweeted, you know, whatever. Uh, he's moved into Substack notes now, so it's just a juggernaut of bad takes, basically. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very so, much. So, Emma, great
1: to be back.
0: I'm always happy to always happy to uh, promote your work, Danny. Uh, so, Emma, let's get into the book um, before we get into sort of why you wrote it and and what your your argument is. Tell everybody what a petrostate is. And you talk about a typology of petrostates in the the opening chapter. Can you kind of go through that and give people a sense of what it is we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, it's funny. This is actually something that emerged. So this book was once upon a time, my dissertation. Um, and it was asking a different research question. It was asking about, you know, why do petrostates start more wars? And as part of that process, um, it actually becomes apparent that we don't have a good definition of what a petrostate is. It's basically something intuitive, instinctive, you know, headlines in the New York Times talking about black gold. It's it's just completely in the mind of whoever's talking about it. Um, and actually, states relate to oil in very different ways. There are states that are heavily dependent on oil revenues, um, you know, so they're corrupt and, and all those things. There are states that are very, very wealthy because of their oil. Um, and then there are states that are these big global exporters, and that's where you start to get into the energy security conversations. And so, um, you know, after sort of going through this process, I was just really dissatisfied with the idea that this is one group, one thing. And I just think we need to be a little more specific about what we mean when we actually say that's a petrostate.
0: So talk a little bit about the differences. You outline these, these three, I think it is, groups or three kind of types of petrostates. What, what, are, we kind of, what, what are the parameters of what we're talking about?
1: So I would measure them, I guess, using different measurements is probably the place to start. But it's basically the topology that I I sort of very briefly laid out there. It's the idea that there are, you know, some states that get very, very wealthy from oil or gas exports. So, you know, I think the quintessential state here would be probably Qatar, you know, which has the highest per capita income in the world, even though it's the world's tiniest state. But, you know, Norway would fall in this category too, right? States that get enriched by their resources and that gives the government loads of money to spend as they as they like. Um, and you would just measure that as, as sort of an income per capita basis. For some states, though, because they're bigger or because they're less developed when they discover their oil, what happens is that they become, you know, not just wealthy in many cases, but very dependent on those resource rents. And this is, you know, for those who have been in comparative politics literature, this is the resource curse, right? The whole debates about whether being dependent on oil and gas exports or revenues undermines your political institutions, undermines democracy, undermines economic development, that stuff. So that's a different group of states. Um, And one way you might measure that is to look at, say, you know, percentage of GDP that comes from oil revenues and that gives you some idea of how dominant oil is in an economy and then the third type or I guess third and fourth because there's there's a slight difference but you know you also I think have to talk about how these states relate to the international market because you know no matter what oil does for a state domestically the reason other states care about it and the reason that importing states and you know The U.S. for the last 40 years until pretty recently was a major importing state. The reason we care is because those states are the ones supplying large quantities to the world oil market. So, you know, I suggest in the book that we also need to think about, you know, which countries produce the biggest share of of the international oil pie and then which countries export most of what they produce. And so, again, that's a different thing. And some states will fit in all of these categories, very few but many states sit in just one or two.
0: And I think you make a distinction in the book to some degree between states that are heavily dependent on resources like Qatar, you know, Venezuela, Iran, and states that are not only heavily dependent on resource revenues, but also exert a great deal of control because they happen to sit on top of a massive... I mean, you know, and these percentages are... Fairly small, but in global terms, they're they're quite large—a uh, massive kind of percentage of the global supply. So, the I mean, the archetype would uh, I, I would think be Saudi Arabia in that case. But can you talk a little bit about that case?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so you know, just for folks who don't closely follow the international oil market, um, there's basically three big producers: it's the Saudis, it's the Russians, and it's the United States, and they all produce um you know it would have been about equal proportions before the war in Ukraine that's definitely less now um but they all produce somewhere around like sixteen to twenty percent of global supply. And then most of these other petrostates um are with are two to five percent of world oil production. That's still a huge amount right? The amount of spare capacity that OPEC maintains to handle shocks is less than 3%. So you're talking about these states are so big and so important to the international market that knocking one of them out would drive gas prices up around the world. And so that gives these states influence, leverage, or even just visibility in international relations. And I, you know, I talked through a variety of cases in the book, you know, where, you know, it ranges from things like these states, you know, they're very rich, they can buy lots of weapons, to more like the Saudi case, where they're just so central to the world economy, that we actually have fought wars to protect the the government and and the oil fields of Saudi Arabia.
0: So there's sort of a and I want to get into kind of the the central argument of the book but there seems to be sort of a a spectrum then that that runs from states that have a lot of resource wealth and are able to invest that resource wealth into building up their foreign policy. Qatar's done a, a, a you know a fairly good job of this. The UAE has done a good job of this either by buying a lot of weapons or by supporting a lot of proxies in, in various places. Up to the level of, let's say, a Saudi that is not just able to afford a lot of weapons, it is able to make itself a a central player in the the sort of, um, you know, in the way that great powers operate, essentially. In in the U.S.-Chinese competition, for example, can you sort of, sort of lay out what what the the main argument of the book is in terms of what the resource curse? does to a country's foreign policy in general. And we can kind of get into these individual cases or the individual types uh, as we go forward.
1: So the, the argument of the book, I think basically in some ways maps onto that topology. I mean, so my first big argument really is just that we need to think about these as different categories. But the, the book then builds on that, I, I think, I hope by arguing that you can look at those relationships. You can look at the way different states relate to oil and you can think about how that might implement, it, how that might impact their foreign policy. So, you know, the most obvious one is military expenditure. Oil wealth gives you, you know, not just the ability as as you say to raise your profile on the international stage, maybe, um, maybe buy a few think tanks in Washington, you know, donate a bunch of money to good causes. It also lets you build up your military. Um and so Petrostates, the the oil wealthy ones spend a huge amount of money on arms. Then you start to get into more of the resource curse question. You talk about oil dependency. And that's where the picture starts to get a little uglier because many of these countries don't have what you might call coherent or good foreign policy institutions. The resource curse, which is sort of predominantly an economic and political phenomenon, but I argue that it also has some impacts in the foreign policy space, right? Making foreign policy in these states very. Centralized, very personalistic, and if you want to get into examples on that, I mean, I think you know the example I have in the book is Saddam Hussein and his his choices to invade various places. But you also could not find a better example, I think, than Vladimir Putin and and the choices he has made in the last year or so. And so th- those, I think, are the the two domestic mechanisms that I that I look at on foreign policy. Um, and then the third sort of the, again these big global exporting states, the mechanisms look a little different because that's much more about strategic interplay between importers and exporters and what they think they need to do to ensure their security of supply. So that's that's a little different.
0: What do we see in, in terms of the linkage? Uh, I mean, apart from the obvious kind of, you know, oil or, or gas or whatever, the, the resource gives a state the money to impose itself in in a bigger way in the world, or to buy a bigger military to support proxy groups, whatever, whatever. Um, it, it seems like as we're going through these cases, there are somewhat different motivators here that, that and get to a common endpoint. I'm I'm kind of curious about how this this plays out, and we can you know want to get into the sort of uh, idea of how oil affects great power behavior because i think if you look at a country like iran or or venezuela or uh, you know the, the military buildups that happened there these happen somewhat in response to external stimuli i mean you know iran builds up its military because it's afraid of israel and the united states uh you know coming after it and because it's gotten on the united states you know naughty list Uh, whereas, you know, you can look at a country like the South, like Saudi Arabia or one of the, the oil giants, the UAE is sort of the perfect example of this. That's in favor with the, the U S and in favor with the dominant kind of global strain, they're building up their military to just play a bigger role in, in geopolitics. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are the, the different kinds of motivators that drive this, this behavior?
1: So one of the points that I, I tried to make in the book, in the, in the section on sort of military spending and, and how petro-states pursue it, is that they act very much like other states in that their spending is focused and geared towards the threats and opportunities that these states face. It's just that they have more resources to do it with. So, you know, I actually found I've got some statistical work in the book in a variety of, of appendices. And, and one of the things I found actually is that Petrostates don't spend proportionally more on their military. They just spend, you know, they just spend more. They have a bigger pie. They're not spending a bigger slice of that pie. And so, you know, I think Iran actually is a great example of how this plays out. Because, you know, we see the Iranians Heavily spending on American and Western arms during the period where the Shah is in power and, you know, very closely aligned with the United States. And then after the revolution and the Iranians, you know, fall out of, you know, US favor, they turn to other suppliers. They turn to the Russians in particular. And then they start to build as sanctions start to bite on them. They start to funnel that money more towards homegrown military equipment. So, you know, they focus on asymmetric capabilities that let them create ch- chaos a little more effectively in their neighbors rather than buying prestige systems the way the Saudis do. So so these states, you know, if you look across the Gulf here, right, you know, the Iranians the Emiratis, but also to some extent, you know, the Kuwaitis, the Qataris, the, you know, all, all of these Gulf states, they're, they're spending high, high amounts of, of money. They're spending more than on average than states in other regions, but they're funneling it in quite different directions depending on what they're able to do.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the real world cases that you cover in the book and the ways that uh, petro-states operate. Can you sort of, uh for you know, in, in things that would be, uh, sort of let's say, familiar to people from the last 15, 20 years, what are some of the ways that that petro state resource curse politics have kind of impacted the, the rest of the world?
1: So, I, I guess let me give you, um, we can maybe talk a little more about Ukraine later. So, that's that's another case that I think is fairly obvious, but let me give you two specific cases. Um, so one is the Venezuelans and um, under Hugo Chavez and under Nicolas Maduro. And, you know, prior to Chavez coming to power, you know, Venezuelan foreign policy was much more friendly towards the United States. There was sort of an elite packed system in the government and they spent a lot of money on their military and they pursued an active foreign policy. But it, when Chavez comes to power, what we see is this very rapid shift in he starts, you know, using the oil wealth much more as a tool of foreign policy, because that he wants to pursue an activist assertive foreign policy, you know, not just against the United States, but in the region more broadly. And so everything from, you know, there is military spending ties with China and Russia, but also there is direct aid, right? So the Chavez regime funnels cheap oil, to various Caribbean states. They actually, and this is one of my favorite examples in the whole book, they actually funded a TV campaign along with a charity that basically provided heating oil to poor Americans and then advertised this on TV while criticizing the Bush administration. So, you know, again, this is sort of just money as a tool of foreign policy, but, you know, the resource curse part enters into it because, it was Chavez himself, it was the shift in government that prompted them to become much more assertive. And he was able to do that because of this wealth. So that's one example. Um, And then another broader example that, that I think is pretty relevant is the Arab Spring and everything that followed after was shaped dramatically by oil wealth. If you look at conflicts in Yemen, Libya, Syria, what we see is that the major players are in many cases, the regional petro-states. The ones who have the money to funnel a lot of weapons, a lot of monetary support straight to these actors inside the Syrian civil war, the Libyan civil war. And different states are interacting in different conflicts, right? So the emirates were basically absent in Syria, but were heavily involved in Libya. But these states really played a role. And I—and to be honest, I think this isn't in the book, but my my personal sort of impression here is that oil wealth um, and the actions of these petrostates really made that a much more costly and just disastrous decade in the Middle East than, than it might have been otherwise.
2: Is that related to the fact that they're oil countries or does that have to do with the geopolitical position and the people who have... Do you see what I'm saying? Like, what's, what's the causal connection? Is it the oil or is it the fact that these geopolitical actors happen to be oil countries?
1: So yeah, there's, there's kind of two, there's, there's two problems with causality here. Um, right. So one is a lot of these regimes are either auto- personalist autocracies or absolute monarchies with a dash of personalist authoritarianism in there. Um, so they're, they're, you know, a specific regime type. Um, and, you know, you could say it's the regime type that's causing this, not the oil. Um, but I would perhaps put to you that since we know that that regime type is also linked to very aggressive foreign policy, um, and there's there's actually some some work that's been done on this by by Jeff Colgan on the notion that, you know, when you put oil wealth and kind of revolutionary or assertive or governance together, you get a real problem. So, I mean, I think that's less of a causality problem. And um, the other one is what you might call the Middle East problem, right? It's the idea that, as, as some have suggested, just the Middle East is particularly conflict-prone. Right. They, they fight a lot more wars. It's a very, very dangerous place. And I, I think there's something to that. But in, but I also think oil wealth is part of the reason why that happens. And, and I talk about this a little in the book about the notion that oil wealth might be driving arms racing in the Middle East. Because if you look at the spending patterns, what you see is the petro states spend a lot of money and even their non oil neighbors spend more proportionally to try and keep up with him, with them. And this dynamic is not one we see in other regions where there are fewer petrostates. So, you know, my sense is, again, it's not that the Middle East is uniquely dangerous because people in the Middle East are crazy, right? Which is one reading of that. It's that the Middle East has arms racing dynamics driven by oil wealth.
0: I think the Arab Springs an, an interesting case to talk about, because there's also, there there's some other dimensions to this. There's the uh what happens when two petro states go to war with each other you know with Qatar on one side and Libya and the UAE on the other uh also in Egypt although that didn't turn into a to an op- outright civil war it was a fairly trying situation for a few years and also i mean sort of looking at the countries that were affected by the arab spring and thinking about where the foreign, the Western intervention came heaviest. It was clearly Libya, which happens to be the one country in that list that is a major oil producing nation. Maybe you could talk a little bit and we can sort of get in. I I do want to get into kind of the differences between the US and China on this front, but maybe just in general, uh, what the possession of these kinds of resources does to a country in terms of attracting unwanted attention. Let's you know, move away from the. You know, I can project uh, my foreign policy better. I'm also attracting a lot of attention from countries like the U.S., from Europe, from uh, potentially Russia, China. What does that do to a country?
1: It's kind of an interesting problem, and it's it's not one I'm actually sure I have a great answer to, because by sort of the classic understandings of energy security dynamics and how countries actually, you know, intervene to try and prop up their oil supply. Libya is a real outlier. It's a really strange case because what the intervention in Libya did was effectively make the oil market less stable. It took Libyan oil pretty much out of the world market for a period of time, but even now it has not fully come back in. Um, And many of the states that actually spearheaded or or promoted the the Western intervention in Libya, particularly, I'm thinking of the Italians, the French, you know, knew this, right? Because they were intimately tied to those producing... Dynamics and so for me, I find this a slightly puzzling case. Um, you know perhaps you know the research other research suggests that we know that states don't actually typically invade other countries for oil, but we believe or we think we know that the interventions to protect oil supplies are to some extent a thing, and Libya just flies in the face of all of that wisdom so i I, I find it a puzzling case, um, and at some point I do want to dig more into that question
0: so let's move further into this area maybe and talk a little bit about the U.S., which occupies, I think, an interesting space here in that it is uh, a huge oil demander, but also, as you mentioned, one of the largest oil suppliers in the world, the largest, I I think, at this point, oil producer in the world. And versus, you know, if we're going to adopt a new Cold War framing versus the other player in the great power stage, China, which is also a huge oil customer not a producer what can we say about the behaviors of these countries uh, and how they may be affected by oil or uh, even oil and gas
1: this is such i mean such an interesting question really and and not to say you're wrong but actually china is a big producer china falls in that category of sort of five percent of world oil production they just consume so much more than they produce um, and, and it's funny, I I often tell students, I teach a course on in oil and international security, and I also try and just explain it to students this way. China, in terms of energy security today, is exactly where America was in 1980 when Carter issued the Carter Doctrine and said we couldn't suffer threats to Middle Eastern oil. Um, okay, that's America- interesting. So
0: it's sort of a, a net effect then, you know, what you're talking about is is the net dependence versus the net in in now the U.S., you know, with the net ability to export. That's okay.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think I even have a chart later on in the book that that I just did like the ratio of production to, to export in some of these places. And really the thing you have to understand about the international oil market, the reason this matters is all oil produced everywhere in the world impacts price because oil is priced globally, right? So a shortfall anywhere takes oil out of the market. But states don't explore everything they produce. And so, you know, in, in effect, not, not to go all sort of George Orwell here, you know, some producers are, are important. Other producers are more important than them. You know, the exporters are more important, more equal than others, I guess.
0: So I, uh, I don't know where to put this question in. It's, it's a question that I imagine you get asked all the time talking about petrostates, it's so common that you even include it in the book, but I wanted to ask you anyway, so you could talk about it here. What about Norway? <laughs> what makes uh, Norway stand out in the world of petrostates and why? It, it, I, I get the sense that maybe the the differences are a little bit exaggerated, but maybe you could talk about what separates Norway and what actually doesn't separate it from the rest of this group.
1: I've actually come to think of this, this question as, you know, you get an elevator pitch. This is the elevator question. So whenever someone asks me for a very short summary of my research and I tell them this, that's the question. And it's a fair one. And I think if you were to talk to any scholar in the comparative politics field that's worked on the resource curse over the last sort of three decades, they would probably tell you that's the question they get, too, because Norway has always just stuck out like a sore thumb in In the realms of of resource producers, it's not actually alone, right? The United Kingdom was a big producer, declining a bit now. um Canada's a major producer the u s is a major producer. But I think Norway, just because it's so small and because it is so you know we have this image of advanced Scandinavian democracy, you know people tend to think of it differently so the the answer as to why it's different, which isn't my research. it comes from a, a you know decades of resource curse literature, is that Norway was lucky enough to find oil once it was already well-developed. Solid institutions, consolidated democracy, you know, so there was no real chance for things to go off the rails badly there in developmental terms because they were already quite developed
2: but Um, just a question doesn't that kind of ignore the actual history of what actually happened like we all know what makes norway different from every other country one was a foundational nation of the global north the others weren't except the united states so this is like the comparative politics question right like comparing norway as a like unit with saudi arabia just ontologically doesn't make sense. I'm just curious what you would say to that. Like, any historians, like, everyone knows what's different about Norway, you know?
1: No, I mean, it's a fair point. Um, And I think, you know, it's worth saying that if we are going to compare Norway to other resource-rich states, we should be comparing it to the UK, the Netherlands, the US, um, rather than to, you know, the Saudis. Um, And this has always been kind of the bane of the resource curse literature, is there's this intuitive notion that if, you know, say Equatorial Guinea didn't have oil, that it would suddenly be Norway or it would suddenly be Denmark. And the answer is no, it would just look more like its neighbors, right? It wouldn't wouldn't have the specific problems it does. Um, so, but I think just, this gets just to a quick sorry question. go on.
2: No, no, no. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Just a quick question. Basically the idea being that like the fundamental thing with all of these nations is their relationship within the imperial architecture of the world. Right. They're 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 their place in that hierarchy is going to determine quite a bit of the effects that oil has on them.
1: I'm so sure about that. I may disagree with you on that because, I mean, to be frank, Saudi Arabia is pretty high up in the global hierarchy, right? They're in the G20. They get invited to all the important meetings. If they are a part of the global south, it is only technically.
2: So this is the problem, right? Like, yeah, they're part of the institutions, but- Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We all know where Saudi Arabia actually stands in sort of the imaginary of the Anglo-American imperium. Now, this is a hard thing for a social scientist to incorporate. Right. Like, there are notions of political community in in and out. And I don't care how many Davos meetings MBS gets sent to. He's not part of that community, except insofar as he's a global capitalist elite. But it would take about five seconds for people to turn on him if that changed, which I don't think would necessarily be true of King Charles. If King Charles was deposed, he would have a different relationship to like the Anglo American core. So I I just like, so basically, this is just the historian's critique, right? Like, that's a, a very difficult thing scientize sort of the imaginary of race and imperium and history and things like that. But I think it does play a pretty important causal role of where Saudi stands, no matter how many meetings they might be invited to or not. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. But look, let me, I guess... Put it to you that we do just need to put this back into more of a development paradigm. You know, put the foreign policy stuff aside right now and go back into the sort of the resource curse literature and its work on development. Yes, it is true that Norway is different from many of these countries, not just because it had institutions at at the time it found oil, but also because it did not suffer that history of exploitation, followed by nationalization, followed by, you know, so these countries, that is an intrinsic part. Of the problems that these countries, that most of these petrostates actually face, but but I do think I mean again I think there are just developmental differences between the two, and in a domestic context, you know if you if you were talking about institutions, if you're talking about why oil wealth bolsters incumbency, which is one of the findings of that literature, it, it applies equally to Norway as it does to Saudi Arabia because they start in different places, they end up. In different places. And it's not all about their international relations. It's it's luck, frankly. It's where they are in the world, and it's luck.
0: You talked a bit about the sort of intersection between oil wealth or petro wealth or resource wealth, whatever, uh, whatever it makes most sense to talk about, and, and sort of personalized uh, autocratic systems of government. We talked about this in, in the context of the Arab Spring. But you have a whole chapter on sort of what resource wealth allows states to do, I think, in terms of projecting foreign policy or projecting their their themselves onto the world stage without necessarily developing any institutional basis for you know, kind of figuring out what it is that they want to do on the world stage. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more uh, about that. It's not necessarily a problem in terms of like, you know, petro-state's, just don't build up these institutions. It's that sort of they don't have to, right? I mean, it's sort of that they're able to just become larger presences on the world stage without laying this kind of institutional framework.
1: Yeah. I mean, so there's two parts to this again, right? There's the domestic part and then there's the international part. The domestic part is that leaders in oil-rich states typically don't have incentives to build up solid state institutions. You know, the, the just this classic story of state formation, everything's a little weaker. And it's not at all clear why they would be strong in foreign policy institutions and weak in economic institutions, right? We that that simply doesn't flow logically. But then as you say, there's this there's this international component, which is that it it is easier for these countries to get a foothold. They don't have to build up a coherent meritocratic foreign service, go out around the world, try to build trade ties, try to get themselves represented at the UN. They don't have to do these things because in many cases, countries or companies, sometimes even it's the same thing, if you're going to talk about like the Italians, they'll come to you and then you have an in with that government. So it, it is sort of easier for petro-states to take those initial steps in foreign policy and for things that fall through the gaps or for areas where they have problems they can often hire or afford to hire foreign consulting firms like mckinsey foreign you know lobbying firms to do their their work for them you know so petrostates are a major source of income for k street lobbyists for example so again you don't need to rely on the traditional institutions of diplomacy if you can use money to substitute for it that's it
0: do domestic politics how did, or I, I guess i should say how do domestic politics impact the way that these countries are able to to operate in the foreign arena and and uh you know there's so many different types of states here i mean you have a cutter that you know hasn't i wouldn't say equitably distributed uh, its gas resources uh, throughout society but certainly because the cuttery population is very small and the natural gas wealth is very large is able to create uh, a very high basic standard of living for everybody, or at least you know i'm not the the sort of foreign labor segment, but at least the the cuttery population itself but you also have cases of you know countries where there are heavily unequal outcomes here that, that are you know where the oil wealth accrues much more. You know, sort of singularly to the top of the pyramid uh, i'm just I'm just curious how these various dynamics can play out in terms of uh, a, a country's foreign policy
1: I mean, I guess I would just emphasize once again the diversity within the sample petrov states. Um, You know, there are states, and Equatorial Guinea is is actually a great example, you know, there are states that are just incredibly unequal. As you say, the wealth very much accrues to those at the top. It's basically a kleptocracy. And then there are those states where they've distributed, where the population is small enough or the wealth is high enough that they can afford to build kind of a social contract with the population around spending, the sort of classic rentier state hypothesis. In both cases, however, I think I could put it to you that you know foreign policy can be a source of benefit for the the autocrats that run many of these states. Um, foreign policy as a way to burnish your legitimacy, raise your profile, have a great narrative to sell to the population. And so, I think to me, it's not a surprise that a lot of these autocratic leaders would then want to play in in foreign policy more aggressively. Um, you know, for and again, I think the the Qataris during the Arab Spring, I think, are a great example of this because they had absolutely no experience with military stuff at all. They hadn't been funding rebel groups. They hadn't been doing any of this stuff. And suddenly they decided if everybody else was doing this during the Arab Spring, they were going to have to get into it. And, you know, again, it's not something that's in the book in a lot of depths, but from, from other research, um, it was a comedy of errors. They just had no idea what they were doing. They had a lot of money and no experience. So um you know the opportunity is there and I think a lot of these authoritarian leaders want to seize it.
0: Yeah, I've been avoiding this but let's let's just do it. Let's talk about Ukraine and how these dynamics play out. I mean your book was published um not long after the the Russian invasion a few months after so uh, you know you have some mention of it uh in the book or at least of the Russian Ukraine relationship but having now observed this this conflict for over a year, uh, what is you know what is your uh, impression of of how Russia's Petrostate uh, elements have have contributed to this conflict?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, as as you sort of rightly note, the book was written before the war started, and like anything in there is one sentence added at the last minute. But I think the themes that we've been talking about and the themes in the book are reflected in in the war in Ukraine. And I guess, let me just pick up on three, three threads here. So one is that I think, you know, the stories that we have shared about Vladimir Putin's decision-making, how personalized it was, how centralized it was, how he didn't rely on institutions, how Russian intelligence and military was very weak um, in terms of its actual abilities, that I think, fits pretty well into this paradigm. And as I say, it it reminds me of nothing so much as Saddam Hussein in the run-up to the Gulf War. the, The stories sound remarkably similar to the point where you could probably change out the names and the narratives would read fairly similarly. Second point is the one on military spending and military capabilities. And I think this can help us explain that weird dichotomy we've seen in the last year where people thought the Russian military was going to be substantially better than it was. And that's because Russia has gone through a very expensive military modernization process over the last decade or two. And, you know, even experts, you know, who closely watched the Russian military thought that this would yield a more effective military force. And at the end of the day, the force was hollow. It was corrupt. The equipment wasn't there. The manpower wasn't there. And so, you know, the point that I make in the book about you can spend a lot on your military as a petrostate, that it might not actually win you wars. I, I think again we've seen that borne out, and and I guess I'll point to one one third thing which we haven't actually talked about at all so far. But there in the book, there's a lengthy case study about pipeline conflicts and the Russia-Ukraine sort of two thousand six two thousand nine gas crises about the notion that the oil weapon is uh, you know less effective than you might think. And again, and this, this is where I may sound a little crazy, but I think if you actually hear me out, um, the last year has actually proven that to be accurate. Putin has not been able to use oil and gas to manipulate the West. The West basically pulled the plug on him in terms of oil and gas. And so, again, I think that confirms one of the, the hypotheses that I have in the book about the oil weapon, from the point of view of petrostates, is not as useful as you might think.
0: Uh, I, uh, I i i i'm not pushing back on that i think that's that's push
2: back derek you know, you know no i i, Jake, I don't want to get know graphic where derek no like pushes i back like a monster truck derek pushes back <laughs> nice okay
0: uh <laughs> i mean i think you're you're right the, the dynamic of the first year of the war has been europe pulling the plug on russia cutting off oil imports cutting off you know uh well the gas was kind of cut off for them in a sense, but we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. So, but but I wonder, you know, and this is, um, I guess we're talking about in light of the big Discord document leak, which I don't know when this interview is going to actually be published, but just know that we're talking about it around the time that everybody was talking about the Discord document leak. There's the U.S. assessment that, you know, this conflict is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's going to continue through 2023. This big Ukrainian counteroffensive even if it emerges is probably not going to do very much. Uh so we're in a, a a frozen situation to a large degree it seems like. And I I wonder whether you could see oil or gas, I guess it would would be the one that I would I would identify most heavily becoming a a more potent weapon in two years or in three years. And and there's a, I mean, there is a double-edged sword here because it, it, there's time for the Europeans to find alternative sources of energy, but there's also more time for a bad winter or a bad, you know, a cold snap here and there or some, uh, you know, exogenous shock to kind of shake up the solidarity behind Ukraine. I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious whether you think the longer this goes on, the more we may test that that theory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the coming winter, is definitely the the one to watch, because last winter, um, or this winter, I guess, that we're just coming out of, the Europeans were able to build up significant stocks before the winter hit, including by just importing a bunch more Russian gas and sticking it in storage. The winter was very mild, right? I, I was spent some time out in Europe in November last year, and I can tell you, as somebody that grew up in Scotland, it is not normal for it to be 60 degrees on the North Sea in November. So, I mean, they got lucky. And this winter, this coming winter, those conditions may not continue. So, I mean, I do think there's definitely an element of Europe could potentially suffer. They have already been suffering from cutting off the gas. The Russians have been benefiting from having gas and oil revenues. Um, they're probably looking at a problem more like two to four years out, particularly with gas, as, you know, new pipelines aren't getting built to China. Right. And so they're gonna lose market share at at that point. And they have clearly been able to keep themselves going through resource revenues. I mean, that is that is where the Russians have been able to sustain this war and to sustain governance. But I still stand by what I said that the oil weapon doesn't work, right? If you characterize it as, you know, leverage, economic statecraft, right? We are going to cut off the oil to you, or we're going to shut down the gas pipeline if you don't do what we want. That's not what has happened. And if anything, you know, the Russians, by sort of saber rattling and threatening that they might cut things off, caused the Europeans to shift away sooner. So I again, I think just the direct oil weapon doesn't work.
0: I think your mention of the 60 degree weather in Scotland uh, leads to my next question, which is where are we going here? Because 60 degree winters in scotland may become the norm because of climate change uh and we do have a movement who knows how you know how strong it is to get away from carbon uh, to get away from oil and gas and coal it's it's floundering i would say but but there is this movement to try to do that what is that going to mean for countries that are still heavily dependent in particular on the revenues from resources like this.
1: So I actually just spent the last few days at a conference with a bunch of folks talking about climate, the energy transition, and geopolitics of what's going to happen in international security. And I think this is sort of a sleeper topic that folks really aren't paying enough attention to, because if, you know, the energy transition does pan out, even in some of the worst scenarios, there are going to be significant geopolitical changes. And in the book, the one that I talk about most in, in the last chapter is what this is going to mean for those, those petrostates, the ones that are dependent on oil revenues, the ones that, you know, rely on this money. And it's a very bleak picture, right? The biggest players, the ones with the lowest production costs. So that's, you know, the Saudis, maybe the Russians depending, the Emirates, you know, they're probably going to be the last ones standing they're going to continue to supply, you know, an increasingly small share of the world that still uses fossil fuels. And so, you know, they'll be poorer, but they'll still have something. But the petrostates that are on the margins, smaller producers, high cost producers, or in the worst cases, the ones that are only now discovering oil and gas and have to figure out whether they're going to be able to exploit it or not. um, I think there's the potential for those states to suffer some serious economic harm. And, you know, again, to pull from the resource card's literature, that has internal stability concerns. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the energy transition, it's going to have winners and losers. The petrostates are going to be among the losers. And as we go through whatever this transition phase looks like, for example, I don't necessarily think those producers are going to stay quiet uh, as they're basically pushed into the losing category.
2: Emma, as we're approaching the end here, I want to ask the counterfactual. Would it be better for these countries never to have the resources?
1: It's hard to say. And I think it very much depends um on which countries we're talking about. There are there are some countries, like for example, I think Qatar again is is not a bad example of, you know, they have clearly been enriched by the oil wealth. The at least the citizen population benefits substantially from it. And you know, without it, they would probably be at a similar level of development. So there there are there are states where, you know, at a minimum or at the very least, we can say they're probably not much worse off and they might be better off. But then there are states like Venezuela or Nigeria, where we can clearly point to oil having had negative impacts on the you know the development of them politically, on the political economy on the future prospects for these states in the world economy. And yeah, I mean, so if you were to ask me about Venezuela, if you were to ask me about Nigeria or some of these other states, I would say they may well have been better never never finding it. Because we know that, you know, just statistically across all these countries, oil-rich states grow at about the same rate as countries that don't find oil. So they should be growing faster, but they grow at the same rate. So they wouldn't necessarily be much worse off
0: maybe to conclude a draw uh, kind of bring the the last two questions together you mentioned and i, I maybe uh, i I'd like to, maybe for you to talk a little bit more about this but you mentioned the potential damage that could be done to countries that are only just now discovering resources and and a lot of this has to do with improvements in offshoring and so you see like the Eastern Mediterranean, Lebanese government is like very anxious to find some gas to get, kind of drill in and get the gas that's in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Madagascar, uh, 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 Mozambique, uh, you know, has offshore oil and gas resources that they're very anxious to get at. Um, these countries seem like they're setting themselves up for disaster, but maybe you could talk a little bit as a sort of closing comment here as you've just talked about some of the countries that might regret having discovered oil in their territory. What are what are some of these places that are just now kind of finding resources and getting very excited about what that could mean economically? What what are they potentially setting themselves up for?
1: Yeah, I mean so the conclusion I guess of the last chapter of the book is that the era of petrostates is ending, right? Wh- whatever the timeline, it's not going to be 10 years Probably more on the order of fifty to hundred years, but the the era is ending. We're looking for other sources of energy, and we're mostly finding them. For the countries that are just now at the you know they're just at the horizon, they're just finding that oil. It's difficult to extract, as you say, much of it's offshore. Um, That means it's high cost. That means you need to bring in Western companies to do the exploitation. And these countries face what um, some scholars have described as sort of the green paradox. Right? If you know that oil is on its way out and you want to maximize your government's take of those resources, then you want to extract it and burn it as fast as possible, putting a glut on the oil market, driving down prices, worsening climate change. So it's worse for everybody. And so my my policy pitch here, rather than my academic pitch, is that that is a problem U.S. policymakers should be thinking about a little more closely and thinking about ways not to go and tell countries in Africa, for example, that you can't exploit your resources because that is not going to go over well, but to think about ways to work with those countries so that they don't necessarily exploit the resources. Think about what else we might be able to provide them to encourage them not to go down that road. And, you know, again, that's a, that's a policy question, not a research question, but, but it's one that I think is quite important as we enter this transition phase.
0: Emma Ashford, the book, again, is Oil, the State, and War, the Foreign Policies of Petro-States. Thank you so much for coming on the program, and we will uh, look forward to having you back.
1: Thanks so much for talking about the book.